I'll ask you again this morning to open your Bibles with me to our study of the book of Jude. I trust for you this has been a wonderful study as the Spirit of God has led our way through the words given to us by God through the pen of His servant Jude, a brother in Christ that we know not physically, but we do know spiritually, one who we one day will be with in the glories of heaven. And as we have been learning through the book of Jude, to a great extent, up to this point, we have been exhorted to be on the defense, to, as Christians, be in a defensive posture. We have been warned to watch out, watch out because of the reality of apostasy in the church. In fact, just by way of reminder, we have been called in verse 3 to action And the action is to contend for the faith once for all delivered to those who are saved, to the saints, the holy ones, the ones called out by God, to the church. We have been called to contend for the faith. And it has been through those exhortations that we have come to realize the dangerous nature that apostasy has for God's church and how destructive, in fact, it can be to the spiritual lives of those who are hurt by it. In fact, we see even today, if you look at the evangelical landscape of today, we see the damage that it has done to the church of God when it is allowed to flourish unchecked by the truth. You say, how how so? Well, it has allowed ungodly activity to erupt in the lives of professing believers because apostasy has gone unchecked by truth in the church in our day. The public acceptance of worldly living among the so-called Christian leaders of evangelicalism in many places has been advanced because of apostasy in the church. In fact, we see greed being preached and put on display through the prosperity gospel. The untold number of people who are actually on the wide road to destruction, many who are, in fact, unbelievers, yet thinking they're saved because they have believed the words of some charlatan in the church who has spoken to them something that isn't the gospel at all, but in fact, another gospel that does not save. This is a warning to us that having tares among the wheat is not just deceptive. Tares among the wheat is spiritually destructive. But in our text this morning, we see a change. As we focus our attention this morning on verses 17 through 23, you, I trust, will notice that Jude turns his attention from the dangers of the apostate and from denouncing them to providing both guidance and also encouragement for us who are believers in the church by giving us a strategy for victory in the midst of apostasy. 
a strategy for victory in the midst of it all. Because when you look at it all and you look around at it all and you see even in our day those who are claiming to be Christians yet falling by the wayside as if they are leaving the faith and many are have and have left the faith, you can wonder what is going on and how am I supposed to live in all of this? How am I supposed to carry on as a Christian? What am I supposed to do? Is there a way for victory in the midst of all of this? We might even think of it on this practical level. Every good defense must also have a good offense if it's going to win. Every good defense must also have a good offense. In the Christian life, that principle is essential. And therefore, there are numerous places in the New Testament when you go to it and look through it whereby we are told not simply to put off the deeds of the flesh, put off that which is sinful, but we are also told to put on the deeds of righteousness. In other words, we are not simply told to live in a defensive way as if we just sit back and now set up our fortified Christian lives as if it's a defense against anything that might be coming at us, but also we are exhorted in an offensive way. And so when we think about our own Christianity, certainly it is imperative that we put off sinfulness. That's the defense. It's imperative that we do that, but it is only part of the sanctification process. We're going to be sanctified walking in holiness, and not only do we not not only do we put off that which is unrighteous, we put on righteousness. So both are imperative, both are commanded. Putting off is a command and putting on is also a command. Therefore, every defense needs its corresponding offense. And that is what we find Jude turning to this morning in our text. Because he gives us in these verses three directives, if you will, for victory. Three directives for victory. In other words, this is our strategy as Christians for combating apostasy in its infiltration in our own lives, but also combating apostasy within the church and its damaging effect upon both of those, ourselves and thereby, by extension, that which we belong to, which is the body of Christ. So let me just list these for us, and then we can begin to unpack them together this morning. These three directives, if you will, are this. Number one, be keenly aware, be keenly aware of the reality of apostasy because it has been foretold that it would be here by the apostles. Be keenly aware of the reality of apostasy because it has been foretold that it would be by the apostles. In other words, you might even want to write a smaller line there rather than the Puritan kind of title that I just gave you. And it might be this, don't let the presence of apostasy surprise you. Don't let the presence of apostasy be so surprising to you. We'll see that in verses 17 to 19. Number two is this. The second directive that Jude gives is this. Cultivate continuously your own spiritual maturity for security amid 
apostasy. Let me say that again. Cultivate continuously your own spiritual maturity for security amid apostasy. You might give a shorter title. It might be this. Your best defense is spiritual maturity. Your best defense is spiritual maturity. In other words, your best defense is a really good offense. And then third, the third directive is act savingly. Act savingly toward those who have already been affected by apostasy. Act savingly toward those who have already been affected by apostasy. So number two will be found in verses 20 and 21. And then number three in verses 22 and 23. You might even say for the third one, be compassionate to those who have already been spiritually tripped up by apostasy. Be compassionate to those who have already been spiritually tripped up by it. Now, I think many of us throughout our study have been wondering just how it is that we as Christians are to respond to the warnings given to us by Jude. And so Jude here is giving to us what our response is to be. And our first response is awareness. Awareness. This is the first directive. Awareness. Notice verses 17 through 19. He says, But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they were saying to you, In the last time there shall be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. These are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit. Now, right there, Jude gives us a description of being warned beforehand and also who it is that we are being warned about. So again, he is changing direction and yet linking it with what we have already been told. In other words, he is saying to us, you have been made aware. You have been made aware. This is such an important truth for us to grab hold of because As Christians, we are told that the war against sin and the flesh and the false spiritual influence, we are told by Scripture that it begins in the mind. That it begins in the mind. In other words, we must have our minds prepared beforehand. And this is what Jude is doing. We must have our minds prepared beforehand. Remember when we were studying through Romans and we got to Romans chapter 12 and we spent several weeks just on the first couple verses, Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2, which says this, I'll just remind us, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So right there, this is the response we have to all that we learned in Romans chapter 1 through 11. Paul's saying, in light of all of that, in light of the grand massiveness of God's mercy to you and just saving you, here's your response, right? You offer yourself to God in this holy way before God, which is worship to God. Well, how do I do that? 
How do I get to that place where I'm worshiping God in light of my salvation, working it out in my life? Paul says here, verse, 12, verse 2 of that very chapter in Romans chapter 12. Do not be conformed to this world. In other words, don't, take, don't let the world shape you with its thinking, its philosophy, how it does things, what it thinks about, its drive, its direction, its wording, its definition of life. Don't let that conform you, but be transformed. How? How am I going to be transformed? Paul says, by the renewing of your mind. By the renewing of your mind. So that, why? Why is that so effective? So that by testing, testing, right? Filtering things that I hear, things that I see, all that's coming at me, filtering those things from my mind through the objective and unchanging Word of God. Taking everything the world has to offer and everything that I hear, regardless of where it is, in evangelicalism or not, and filtering it through the Word of God so that, Paul says, you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. It begins in the mind. If we're going to win... We're going to have victory. The strategy for victory is awareness, having our minds transformed. And so you see right there in those verses in, in Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2, if we are going to be living rightly, if we're going to be worshiping God as we ought to be worshiping, if we're going to be carrying out our lives rightly as God has called us, then we must first begin with thinking rightly. We'll never live rightly if we are thinking wrongly. And that's where Jude begins in this transition. If you are not aware beforehand, then you can be easily caught off guard. If you're not aware of this at the beginning, you'll be caught off guard. Notice what he says, but you beloved. Now you can just stop right there, pause for a moment. Don't run too quickly past those words and go, okay, yeah, those are just greetings. No, if you, if you understand it, if you just let it sit there for a while, and what we have been studying here, this is now a shift in tone. Jude is shifting in tone. He's, he's transitioning from the condemnation of the apostates that we read about from verse 5 all the way to this point. And now he is helping us personally deal with that apostasy in our midst. In our midst as Christians, as we walk about and interact in the evangelical world in which we live, and I hope some of you are interacting in those realms and thinking about those as you see the landscape, but also in the church, which is part of that realm. This is how we are to be interacting with the church. So he's no longer condemning the apostates by way of what he's telling us. Now he's helping us personally deal with it in that way. And he's bringing us and telling us to be personally careful about what we hear, be personally careful about what you read, be personally careful about what you watch, what you follow, what you incorporate into your lives. Be very careful about that, he says. Listen, here is how you need to think about apostates and apostasy. How? How, Jude? How am I supposed to think about that? First, don't be surprised that it's happening. Don't be surprised that it's happening. Sometimes we get shocked when we see someone that we know 
someone maybe we've walked with for a long time has claimed Christianity and all these kinds of things, maybe even someone who is well known within the Christian realms and yet they seem to have gone a direction that doesn't match up with Scripture. And it shocks us. Paul says, listen, don't be surprised, don't be shocked at its reality. Why? Because apostates and apostasy and the reality of apostasy was spoken about by the apostles to be happening in the end times. And guess what, beloved? You and I live in the end times. We are in the end times. Not only was Jude in the end times during his life, but you and I are in the end times right now. And that should excite us rather than shock us. To really excite us. In other words, apostolic prophecy is being fulfilled as sure as you and I are sitting right here right now. You ever think about it like that? God is fulfilling his word through his apostles and through the other prophets right here, right now, this day as we sit here. And therefore, apostasy and what is going on within the church is a marker for us as true Christians that we are in the last days. Jude says, therefore, remember, be aware of that fact. That means... And we are not simply to call it to mind. We're not simply to call it to mind and go, oh, gee, yeah, okay. But we're actually, the knowledge of it ought to have an impact on our very living. The fact that we know this is reality. The fact that we know what God said. The fact that we know that what the apostles said before is happening right now, just as it was then, ought to impact our very living. In other words, just knowing about it, just being aware of the fact that apostasy is happening within evangelicalism ought to affect our very lives. Now, I know what's going to happen. Somebody's going to come up and they're going to say, well, pastor, you know, I don't, I've read through the New Testament. I open my Bible. I've read through the Gospels and Paul's letters to the churches. I've read through the prophetic literature in the New Testament. I don't recall reading any warnings from the apostles like this. Can you help me with that? Where is that in the Bible? Well, at the beginning of the church, the apostle Paul warned the elders in the church of Ephesus about apostasy in the church. Go back for a moment to Acts chapter 20. We'll just kind of go through a few of these places. Acts chapter 20, Paul getting ready to, on his way to Rome, he's about to be held trial for preaching the gospel. He calls the elders of Ephesus, the church in Revelation that has forgotten their first love. This is way prior to that. And here the elders of Ephesus come down, they're called to him. And when they had come to him, verse 18, he said to them, what? You, you yourselves know from the first day I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility, with tears, with trials, which came upon me through the plots of the Jews, how I didn't shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house. I was solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now... 
Behold, bound in spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what's going to happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying the bonds and afflictions await me. You say, how did the Holy Spirit testify to Paul that bonds and, and afflictions await him in every city? Because in every city, Paul was faced with bonds and afflictions. In other words, people hated what he was saying, and they threw him in jail, they chased him out. I mean, you can just read Paul's journeys through the cities that he went to. They didn't like it. And he says, but that doesn't matter. I don't consider my life of any account, verse 24, it's dear, as dear to myself, in order that I might finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus, what's that? To testify, solemn, testi testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will see my face no more. Therefore, I want to testify to you this day. In other words, I know I'm not going to see you again, so i got a few things I want to tell you before I leave, and you'll never hear me or see me again. Well, what is it? What's so important, Paul? He says, listen, I'm innocent of the blood of all men. I didn't shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. So therefore, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know... That after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. So right there in Acts chapter 20, the beginning of the church. Paul is warning the church that not only is apostasy very possible from coming from the outside into the church, but also from even those who are already in the church will rise up in that way. And Paul got even more direct when he warned Timothy. Go to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul gets very direct with his protege in the faith about what would be coming in the last days when he says to him in chapter 3, realize this, beginning in verse 1, that in the last days, difficult times will come. What kind of difficulty? What will it be like? Well, men will be lovers of self, lovers of money. They will be boastful, arrogant. They will be revilers. They will be disobedient to parents. That just simply means hating authority. They will be ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control. They will be brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. They're holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Paul says, avoid such men as these. That sounds like a, a, a categorical list of the days we live in today end times, these last days. And it's not outside the church, it's not the world around us that this is the big problem. Certainly we see that in the world. We expect this kind of nonsense in the world, but you don't expect it in the church. And yet here it is, those who have holding to some form of godliness, but it's not powerful. Also, stay away from that. There's a warning. And so apostasy is a reality within Christendom. 
And we would do well to be aware of it. We'd do well to not be surprised when it's happening. Why? Because scoffers and mockers characterize the last days. Scoffers and mockers. In other words, they are assigned to us a divine marker, if you will, that we are in the last days. When do those days begin? They began when Christ came the first time, and they will end when Christ returns the second time. That's the last days. And so Jude says to us, be aware. Be aware. You, beloved, ought to be, uh, you ought to remember. Be aware. The coming of ungodly men are to be expected. The apostles were telling us this from the beginning of the church age. That's what he says in verse 18, they were saying to you in the last time there shall be mockers, mockers following after their own lust. What's a mocker? What's a mocker? Mockers are those who call into question the truth. That's the general definition. Those who call into question the truth. And why do they mock the truth? Second Timothy told us because they are following after their own self. They are lovers of self. Timothy gives that grand description in 2 Timothy chapter 3 of those who mock. They are unloving, ungodly, unkind, anti-authority. They hate the truth. They mock the truth. And this is the same conclusion that Jude gives us here in verse 18. Why are they like this? Because they follow after their own ungodly lusts, he says. In the last time there shall be mockers. And why? They're f- because they're following after their own ungodly lusts. This is why they mock. They mock the truth because they are not, get this, of the truth. They mock the truth because they are not of the truth. They are of their own desires. They are self-absorbed and therefore they are self-condemned. Self-condemned. Jesus Christ said in John 18 verse 37 when he was on trial before Pilate, everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Everyone who is of the truth, here's my voice. As Christians, we are of the truth people. That should be the moniker over us. We are of the truth. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 4, I, I, I read it this morning, but you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Truth, God's word is pure, it is holy, it is righteous. And so you see, this is who we are. We as Christians are of the truth people. Paul said to the Thessalonians in 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 10 that people die in their sin. Why? Because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. 
They die in their sin. Why? Because they reject the truth, right? Paul in Romans 1, they suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. Paul says in 1 Timothy 3, verse 15, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support, what? Of the truth. This is who we are. This is what we do. This is, this is the very character of the Christian. And sadly, Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 2, which we studied before Jude, he says that many will follow their sensuality, talking about false teachers, many will follow their sensuality. Why? And because of them, the way of the truth is being maligned. We are of the truth people. The church is the pillar and support of the truth. Jesus Christ said, all who follow me, who are of the truth, hear my voice. This is who we are. And yet, because of the false teacher, because of the apostate, because of those infiltrating the church in that way, the truth is being maligned. The Apostle John in 1 John 2, verse 21 says, I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but, but because you do know it and because no lie is of the truth. Apostates are not of the truth, beloved. They are ungodly. They are of their own ungodly lusts. In fact, Jude plunges a bit deeper into their conduct says in verse 19, these are the ones who cause divisions. That brings it a little closer to home, doesn't it? Jude is not pulling any punches. Jude's not saying, hey, listen, this is not something that's isolated to some place away from you. No, this is the very reality, like Paul said in, to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20. Some will rise up from among you, not sparing the flock. Dividing, killing, destroying. This is what Jude says. They cause divisions. What is that? Well, the word for divisions there carries the idea of promoting and developing boundaries. Promoting and developing boundaries. We might even say in the church, apostates are fence builders. They're those who separate rather than join together. They destroy rather than build. They separate others from the whole. Not only do they not follow the truth, they're not of the truth, but they divide others away from it to follow them. To follow their own mockings as they question the truth, as they doubt the truth as they try to redefine the truth to fit their own desires they draw others away that's what he's saying in fact Paul gets very serious about this when he talks to Titus not that he wasn't serious talking to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3 but in Titus he says here's how you deal with this kind of divisive person in the church Titus 3.10, reject a factious man after a first and second warning 
And then verse 11 comes on, and you say, you ask yourself, why be so quick, Paul? Why be so resolute with, your, with disregarding them altogether? I mean, those are pretty strong words, rejection. Why do that so quickly? One, two warnings. Why reject them so quickly? Because verse 11 says, knowing that such a man is perverted and sinning, here's his condition, being self-condemned. Being self-condemned. Paul says, reject them. That's the word means refuse them. Uh, Put them away. Don't even be near them. It's like he said to Timothy, right? Remain away from them. Reject them. Avoid them. Reject a factious person. Factious is is the word in the original language where we get the word heretic. Heretic. Someone who who builds schisms, someone who divides, a heretic. Stay away from them. Why? Because they're perverted. They subvert everything by their sinning. Why? Because they're self-condemned. It's who they are. They're not godly, they're ungodly. That's exactly what the apostate is. The apostate is a factious, spiritually perverted, self-condemned individual who infiltrated the church and is dangerous to the flock. Now, if we think that's too harsh of a definition for someone who does that in the flock of God, then we don't understand our scriptures. Because that's exactly how God describes them. They mock at the truth with their own words and by their own living and thereby they cause divisions among the saints. And so Paul gets very direct with Titus and he says, reject them as heretics. Wow. We don't like to mention that word because man, those are fighting words in evangelicalism. What's the source? What's the cause of these divisions that they have? Paul says in Or Jude says in verse 19, notice these are the ones who cause divisions, worldly minded, worldly minded. Mark this, mark it in your mind, mark it in your heart. Worldly minded people cause divisions in the church. Worldly minded heart is where that comes from. That is simply to say that they think like the world. That's what worldly minded is. Right? Don't be conformed to the world, and yet that's the very thing that they do. They conform their mind to the ways that the world thinks. That, in fact, is where their wisdom comes from. That's where their wisdom comes from, the world. And it is... Get this, demonic. Huh? Demonic? That's, that's really going the next step, Pastor. I mean, demonic? Yeah, just turn over to James 3 for a moment. Demonic. This is fascinating. You've got to make this linkage in our theology or we're going to have a misstep. Notice, James chapter 3 Beginning in verse 13, who among you is wise and understanding? Well, that's a 
It's a nice question, right? We, we think we know some things. We, we think we got some understanding. All right, who, who of you is wise then? Who is skilled in living? Who understands? Well, let him show by his good behavior his deeds in gentleness of wisdom. So though this wisdom is the, is the outflow, not of words, but of your life as it's lived out from the word of God. As you, you saturate yourself in the truth, it filters down the objective things that you hear or the subjective things you hear are filtered down through objective truth, living itself out in your life, in your deeds, the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, don't be arrogant and so lie against the truth. In other words, be honest with yourself. No, rightly examine your own heart. Don't, don't say, oh yeah, I'm wise when you're not living wisely because this wisdom is not that which comes down from above but is earthly, natural, and what? Demonic. You want to know what worldly thinking's like? It's demonic thinking. You want to agree with the world and its direction and what it's doing and, and, and the philosophies of men and all those kind of things? Guess what you're agreeing with? The prince of the power of the air. That's why he says, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, what does jealousy and selfish ambition do? It causes divisions, schisms. Where that exists, there is disorder and every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, which means willing to yield, full of mercy and of good fruits, unwavering without hypocrisy. In other words, it's conviction based upon truth and doesn't say one thing and do another. The seed whose fruit is righteousness. And then, of course, Jude goes in in chapter 4, and what, what causes quarrels and fights? Isn't it not you? It's your lust. It's your own lust. This is what he's talking about. So listen, beloved Apostates are dangerous. They're not just, oh, gee, I, I feel bad. No, they're dangerous, and we have to be aware of them. Why? Because they come in and prey upon the unsuspecting. And like Jude says in, Jude, in, in verse 19, they are void of the Spirit. They don't have the Spirit of God. In other words, because they don't have the Spirit of God, because they're not saved people, because they're following after demonic things, they don't have the desires of the Holy Spirit and what He teaches and in what He produces in those who are His. It's all manufactured. It's all false fruit. Whatever righteousness they are doing. So Paul says, or so Jude says, don't be surprised when, you, when they're discovered. Don't be surprised. We have to realize that we have these battles in the church. Why? Because we're in the last days. We're in the last days and therefore we know that we're dealing with them. We're dealing with divisive people who care nothing about dividing the church of God. Why? Because they are following after their own desires rather than God's. And why are they doing that? Because they don't have the Holy Spirit. They're not saved people. What is our best offense then? What's our best offense? Number two. Number two, cultivate continuously your own spiritual maturity for the sake of security amid apostasy. 
Not only do we need to be aware of those who cause trouble in the church, but our best offensive weapon against any of it is our own spiritual growth. You say, why? Because apostates prey on the weak. They prey on the immature, the spiritually immature, those weighed down, as Paul said, by various impulses, as Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, again, verse 6, those weighed down by impulses, for among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses. He's not singling out women as if they're the only weak. It's any Christian in that case. When we are spiritually immature simply because of our own neglect and undealt with sin in our life, then we are ripe for some false teacher to come along and deceive us with some foolish words about how to care for it. And so Jude says it's imperative for us, notice verse 20, but you, beloved, building yourself up, or or sorry, uh, verse 9, yeah, verse 20, but you, beloved, building yourself up on the most holy faith. Building yourself up on the most holy faith. In other words, keep yourselves, keep yourselves, as some of your translations might say, in the love of God. Right? Verse 21, keep yourselves in the love of God. So that's a command. That is the command right there at the the beginning of verse 21. Keeping yourselves in the love of God. That's the command of verse 20 and 21. Everything that comes before that is telling us how to do that, and everything that comes after that in verse 21 is telling us how to do that. So let's not be confused. He isn't saying that we keep ourselves saved. He's not saying that we do something that saves ourselves. That's what God does. Once we have faith in Christ, nothing can change our position of salvation before God. We are in Christ, in God. So while God securely holds us, God keeps us secure in Him as Christians. At the same time, He is energizing us by the Holy Spirit to persevere, to continue on. And so this is what Jude is saying here. He is saying for us to maintain our love for God and keep ourselves in the spiritual place in our lives where we are experientially knowing God is Love and knowing that He loves us. Both sides are needed for us to grow. You say, well, that's confusing. Well, here's how one other commentator stated it. Maybe this will be more clear. He said, quote, We cannot maintain love for God unless we keep ourselves in the place where we are experiencing His love for us. And we experience his love for us when we are walking in submissive obedience to his word out of reverence for him. So God is keeping us and he has energized us by the spirit to walk in obedience. And we must walk in obedience. That's what Jude is talking about here in verses 20 and 21. There is no greater avenue for our spiritual maturity than obedience to His Word. No greater avenue for us, no better way for us to mature as Christians than to walk in obedience to what the Word of God says. How do we do that? Notice what Jude says. 
He says, you, beloved, building yourself up on your most holy faith. That's the first way we do it, right? Build yourself up in the very thing that we have been exhorted to contend for. The faith, the body of truth, the word of God, that which we know to be true of the word of God and growing in our understanding of the word of God. In other words, we mature in the faith when we learn and believe the Word of God. You will mature in your Christian life, mature in the faith, mature in trusting God in all details of your life when you know what the Word of God means by what it says. So believing in the Word of God means that we are practicing the Word of God. It's not just saying we believe it. It's not just saying, oh yeah, I believe the Bible. There's a lot of people who say that. In fact, there's a lot of apostates who say that. Now, believing the Word of God means we live the Word of God in our lives. So if we say that we believe the Word of God, but we don't obey the Word of God, then James says we're just hearers only. And no wonder we don't grow. No wonder we stay immature. No wonder we're always struggling. We're like plants that that have water poured on us, but we never drink in the juice. We never take in the nutrients. Sooner or later, we just wither. That's what it's like in our own spiritual maturity. When we take in the truth, but we don't do the truth, we don't grow in the truth. So we have to be doers of the word, Jude says. But secondly, he says, notice verse 20, we must be praying in the Holy Spirit. Build yourself up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. He isn't talking about some mystical practice here. Praying in the Holy Spirit isn't getting in your closet and going into some kind of mindless trance about things. No, it's prayer that is in tune with God's desires. The Holy Spirit knows the mind of God. The Holy Spirit only does what the mind of God desires because He is God and therefore praying in the Holy Spirit is praying in tune with God's desires. It's prayer that reflects the fact that what we desire is what God desires. Let me say that again. It's prayer that reflects that what we are desiring is what God desires. In other words, it reflects the truth of God in us. So it's prayer that is fueled by walking in truth. In other words, we'll just say it this way. A biblically saturated life produces biblically saturated prayer. And listen, beloved, our best offense against apostasy is going to be a solid offense. And our best offense is to be spiritually mature Christians. How do we do that? By being saturated in the truth, not just hearing from it, but doing it in our lives, and secondly, by biblically saturating our prayer life with the fuel from being saturated from the Scriptures in our life. And then Jude finally says, 
waiting anxiously. Verse 21, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. Jude says, listen, he says, you, you need to be saturating yourself in the word. You need to be praying out the things of God because through from your saturation in the word and you need to be anxious in anticipation for the Lord's return. I love this because this is where the balance comes in, right? This is where the balance comes in because man, if you're, if you're like me, in your Christian walk, and I, and I would assume that you are, then you know full well that in both of those areas, both in your obedience to the things of God and your prayer life before God, that your love for God through your obedience needs a lot of help, needs a whole lot of help. You know you haven't arrived there in your obedience, and your prayer life needs a lot of help. And you go, man, if this is what I'm supposed to do in order to be equipped with the the reality of victory in this, if I'm honest, man, I fail a whole lot and just that failure is crushing me. And that, beloved, is why we need anticipating the Lord's coming. That's why we need to anticipate Jesus' coming. Because desiring His return helps me understand my condition without Him. Think of how bad it would be. Think of who we would be as Christians today, even Christians that stumble a lot. Think of how bad we would be if Christ was not in us. Man, just look around at the world. You, that's who you'd be. That's who I'd be. We'd be just like them. And so it causes me to be humble about my own condition. Causes me to think about myself in the right way, knowing that I am in continual need of God's mercy every day. No way have I arrived. And so that even though I'm striving to love Him as I ought, even though I'm striving with all my being to to obey, I pray, but not often with the intensity that I ought, even with all of that going on, I wait in faith. I wait in faith, knowing that mercy comes with Christ. And in the end, eternal life will be the outcome. That it's not about what I do here that brings me into the kingdom of God. It's not about what I've done here that God loves me. It's because of what He did. In fact, rather than being crushed under my own failures, I'm more than a conqueror wrapped up in His victory. He's the one who's victorious. And that is humble spiritual maturity. And the reality is you'll never be there if you're so consumed with the world and live as if Christ is not coming. See, if you live with anticipation that he's coming, you you won't be raptured in the things of the world and what's going on there. You'll be raptured in who Christ is and what he's accomplished and the fact that in him, none of this stuff is going to be matter anyway. And so even when you fail and when you don't walk in obedience and when your prayer life isn't all that it's cracked up to be, you know that Christ is coming and you press toward the goal of the high calling which is in Christ Jesus. 
That's the reality. That's what the apostle, that's what Jude is saying here. He says, listen, apostate is, apostates are there. It's dangerous. Listen, don't get me wrong. We need to contend for the faith and you need to recognize it and you need to understand it and you need to be careful and you need to be cautious and you need to define things as the Bible defines them and you need to be really scrutinizing and brightly critical about what is going on. And you also, though, need to cultivate your own spiritual maturity. You need to be in such a way that you in your own life Work hard at knowing the truth. Work hard at obeying the truth. Work hard at praying the truth of God. Not so that you gain some, some place before God in your own life. No, no, no. Just so you'll, you'll be equipped when it comes, when the trouble comes, knowing that when somebody says to you, yeah, but you don't do that, you say, listen, it's not about me, it's about Jesus Christ. When someone says, yeah, the gospel can't be so right because look, it hasn't changed me at all. You say, listen, that's because you're not looking at the right thing. You think it's about you. The way you earn your salvation and it's not about you earning anything. It's about Jesus Christ. It's Jesus Christ only. And through the power of the Spirit, you are equipped to do what God desires for you to do. And so you strive at it. You continue, as Paul said, to press on to that victory that you know is in Jesus Christ, not in you at all. And so when you fail, you get up off that dusty, disobedient floor and you shake the dust off yourself and you say, Lord, I know I should be doing better. Please, please give me the strength to do that. And you go back to the Word of God and you absorb yourself in the Word of God and you pray with fervency before God and you minister out all of those things that God has told you to obey. You walk in service to God. You interact with the people of God. You sharpen one another through that and God matures you by that and you anticipate the day that Christ comes and all of your failures, as big or as small as they are, are gone. And you say, praise Jesus for that. And it has nothing to do with you. Paul says, you want to fight against apostasy? That's how to do it. That's how to do it. And we have a third one left. The third one left. No time for it, unfortunately, because I'm long-winded. But the beauty is we have next week. And so we'll get to it next time. And even possibly, possibly we'll finish our study of Jude next week. Just a little precursor as to where we are probably going to go from Jude. I may take a few weeks to just kind of revisit a few other places that we've been in the past. But we're going to go to the Gospel of Luke. We're going to go to the Gospel of Luke because I think no better place to be equipped to fight off any kind of falseness than to know what Jesus Christ was like and did. And we've seen that in Mark and we've seen that in John, but we are going to see it again in Luke. And then after Luke, after however long that takes us, we'll be in the book of Acts, which is Luke number two. And that'll take us somewhere into the year 2030, I think, maybe, or something like that. I'm not sure. Well, thank you for your patience. Would you pray with me this morning? Lord, we have endeavored to 
understand your word. You are rich and you are indeed full of grace. You not only arm us, but you warn us. You, you equip us for every good deed. And so we this morning, after our time together here, we can simply say thank you. Thank you for those who have gone before us, like our brother Jude. Thank you for speaking through them to warn us and to challenge us to love you more. And thank you for equipping us for spiritual maturity so that we are not taken captive by the deceitfulness of ungodly men. So use us, Lord, to help others so that your name is glorified and honored above all. And we thankfully and with anticipation desire and wait for your return. And so we pray, please, Lord, come quickly. For it is in our Savior's holy, precious name that we pray. All God's people said, Amen.